everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 149 of Yogaland. So last week I said I might be letting go of the episode numbers, but you know, I struggle with change. So clearly I have not made that change yet. And that's kind of apropos. I wasn't really wasn't planning this, but it is related to today's episode. Last week we talked about change and how we change and evolve in our yoga practice and teaching. And Jason sort of shared what that internal process was like for him when that first started happening. And then today he's going to talk about how he has actually implemented changes over the years and just kind of how to go about it because it's his belief and mine as well that it's a good thing to evolve and to make changes and little software updates to the micro level of your teaching and then perhaps even to the macro level if if that's necessary for you. So that's what we talk about today. Jason is currently in the middle of teaching module two here at Love Story in San Francisco of his 500-hour training. And I am immersed in the online meditation and self-care course. So we're both doing what makes us happiest besides parenting and being together and watching bad TV. And so I just wish for you that you are feeling fulfilled and full and enjoying the vibrancy of being alive. And if you enjoy the podcasts, it's always so helpful to get five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. They are a bright spot in my day and I appreciate them so much and I appreciate you so much. Okay, we are back. This is essentially part two of the last discussion we had. We were talking about what to do as a yoga teacher when you start to feel like your practice is changing and getting a little bit different from what you've been teaching for years. And in this discussion, we're going to talk about what we talked about was sort of the internal process of going through those changes and and how to look at them internally. We're going to talk more practically this time. So how to handle the implementation of changing and making either small or big changes in your teaching. So what you talked about last time is the fact that you, I think when you first started teaching before you were ever even like had done a formal teacher training, you were teaching Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. Yeah. 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 And now you don't. So you clearly changed over the years. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about your shift and how it happened? Yeah. Just to give a quick overview too, what we'll do is we'll talk a little bit first about as a teacher, how to implement changes within your teaching style when you really are migrating styles. Like when you're really going from, I'm a restorative teacher to I'm a flow teacher, or I'm an Ashtanga teacher to I'm a restorative teacher. Like when you're making those larger big C changes, and then secondly, when you change technique, right? The When you change the way you not, – not when you like decide to teach something differently, but when you make a wholesale revision okay. on how you approach a pose or a process, what we want to do in that phase. So I'll start with myself, which is like a lot of people of a certain generation – I started teaching because my teacher at the time asked me to teach, not because I did a teacher training. So I had been practicing Ashtanga yoga for a few years, and it was such a good fit for me. Less a fit for my 
body and more a fit for my temperament mm-hmm. and my my desire to have a consistent framework to work in, right? And those are still things that I really love about that particular practice is the consistency and the framework that it provides people can be really valuable. So I started teaching Introduction to Ashtanga Yoga, and I think I think it was in 97? Anyways, it was a while ago, right? And I still had secondary jobs, right? But a few months into teaching, I realized that the experience of practicing yoga and the experience of teaching yoga were really different things. And I was ill-prepared to be a teacher, even though I had asked to be a teacher, and there weren't that many teacher training programs around. So very long story made short, I enrolled in Rodney Yee, Richard Rosen, Mary Pafard, and Patricia Sullivan's two-year teacher training program. Actually, it was 18 months and about 1,000 hours. And I did that. And all of those teachers, they were no longer Iyengar teachers, but they all came from the Iyengar world. So I went internally from this very rhythmic-oriented practice to this very technically detail-oriented practice. And I really loved both of them. But as the years continued to progress... And, you know, even that training, since it was a long time, you know, I I taught hundreds, if not a thousand classes during the course of that training. So, of course, as I was doing this very detail-oriented, technique-driven training while teaching Ashtanga Yoga, the way that I was teaching Ashtanga Yoga started to become really different. I wasn't counting while people were in down dog. Hmm. You weren't? No. Huh. I was telling them what to do with their thigh bones and oh, what to do with okay. their metatarsals and what to do Got with it. their yeah, space between different. their hip points, right? That's really different. So I was really popular, though, because that was different. And although I didn't know him at the time, it was a little bit more along the lines of a Richard Freeman approach to Ashtanga Yoga that was – I mean, of course, I was not nearly as, as graceful yeah, like, or skillful. I'm not calling myself a Freeman not. when I was 25 years old. I'm not. <laughs> or even now, for that matter. But the point is, is that it was, some, it was a style of Ashtanga yoga that was, that was more technically that, – that had more focus on technique. We'll, uh, we'll put it that way. Right. Okay? But I became, over that process, much more interested in the technique, in the subtle technique – then I was interested in the primary series itself. And then secondarily is when you become really interested in technique, ultimately you want to create a sequence that helps that technique flourish, right? And so if I really wanted to teach people the technique of grounding the femurs, or now we might say posterior femoral glide, right? If I wanted to teach that technique, I could do it in an Ashtanga practice, but I could do it even better if I created a specific sequence to teach that element, right? That's where I started to leave the Ashtanga world. It wasn't that I had an aversion to that practice. I still don't actually. It doesn't work that well for my body, but there's a lot of things about it I really like. But I had to move on from it at that time because I became more interested in writing my own music. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to create sequences that I felt like could exhibit what I was most interested in now. And I didn't really want to stay in that framework. I wanted to keep the rhythm and the continuity that Ashtanga Yoga provided, 
but I wanted to change the sequence. I wanted to change the pacing a little bit, and I wanted to change the technique profile. That was a very difficult thing because as a teacher, I knew that ultimately I wasn't being pushed away from the Ashtanga world, but I was being pulled into a different world just because of my own interests. And so I couldn't completely be who I wanted to be as a teacher if I stayed in that framework and I had to move on. But my livelihood and my identity relied on it. This actually probably surprised you, which is I was looking back. I don't know how it came up, but I was looking back at the first conference descriptions that I wrote for Yoga Journal. Oh, wow. They were Ashtanga classes. In Wisconsin? Uh, on the cruise. Wow. And then, really? Yes, yes. They were Ashtanga I classes. I do remember that you hung on to your Friday night Ashtanga class Forever. for a long time. Because, and part of that was because social. I went to it yeah, 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 once, yeah. and we were friends right. years after right. you were So I think this has to be made really clear, which is I didn't have any beef with that world. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I I thought this was now a a false whatever and bad. That that wasn't my belief. It was just that I wanted to write my own music and and it was time for me to move on. But that was a very scary process. So how did you do it? So I did it over a long period of time, which was I maintained that one class. So I let my several Ashtanga classes go including my intro to Ashtanga classes, and I converted them to vinyasa. So you were able to do that where you were teaching? I was able to do that so where I was teaching. So that's fortunate, because that was, would not typically it was, be the case. It was. Yeah. It was a different world, but also, different world yeah. but also I had developed the student equity to do that. I had a student base, but I maintained my Friday night class for a long time. Like years. Years. Yeah. And again, like I said, part of that was just because because of the social climate. I didn't believe that what I was teaching was bad. It was just, I wasn't interested in it anymore. And so I wanted to keep that financially. I wanted to keep that socially. And yet I wanted to slowly evolve and develop parallel content. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I thought about these as parallel tracks. It wasn't, it wasn't a, I'm cutting this off and starting something else. I slowly started to reduce one style and increase another style. Do you remember what you called the new style that you were teaching? Do you remember what you called it? I was just like vinyasa. Okay. Even like today, I call it vinyasa. I don't even think I call my, or I don't even think I call things like alignment informed, whatever. Like well, I, you, it was, that's what they called it at the loft, but okay. I just didn't know even, I can't remember if we called it vinyasa back then. I I don't remember. It was either that or Hatha Flow or, you know, Hatha whatever. Flow, Hatha, Hatha Flow. It was probably Hatha Flow. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was one thing, right? So if you are teaching a specific style and you feel like you need to move on from that style, then that main piece of advice, which might be really basic, right? But it's still what we need to do is to develop kind of a parallel track system where you maintain one of those classes or two of those classes in the original style, but you start to build up classes in a parallel style. I know a lot of people that have gone from more of like a flow-based practice to more of a slow, gentle, restorative, contemplative practice, right? Mm -hmm. So you probably don't want to do that super abruptly, If you have a business dependence on it, 
So you want to see that coming and just start to develop both processes simultaneously and then start to dissolve the, the original process that you no longer feel akin to. And that change probably is going to be scary. It probably is going to feel a little bit like a career change. And in ways that it is, you will lose some students and you have to be okay with that. Like you can't, if there is an inevitability and a desire to make that change, you can't allow some of the basic inevitable fears to stymie you. Right. Okay. You know, you just have to go through that process. Mm -hmm. And what happens, happens. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, too, is like your students will recover. I remember when I left Piedmont Yoga Studio as an Ashtanga teacher. The reason I left Piedmont Yoga Studio is because it was in Oakland. But I remember there was one student of mine. I don't remember. And you were living in San Francisco. And I was living in San Francisco. And I remember being like so afraid and upset to let this one particular student down. You know what I mean? Like I just, you know what I mean? Like, but I think, I think as teachers, we do that because as teachers, we become, we become to some degree bonded to students. Sure, sure, sure. Right? Yeah. And so that becomes part of our, part of our world. And you know how long I let my, held on to my privates, right? Well, yeah. And you had really strong relationships. I had really strong relationships, right? They're like friends of ours. Totally. Yeah. But you can't inhibit yourself from making a necessary change. Your students will be fine. Okay. So let me ask this. What if you are able to change the class like you did? Or even if you can't change it at your current studio, you you find another slot that you think is good enough. Across the street. <laughs> right. Yeah. And your students don't follow you. They may not follow you. You have to develop a new base. Okay. You have to develop a new base. You imagine, you know, we live in the Bay Area, so this happens all over the place, but you can imagine the amount of people that have gone from their stable job at Oracle to doing a startup, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just, it is this very human thing where oftentimes a lot of us in the yoga world have a little bit more of an artistic temperament. And I feel like a lot of people in the yoga world, including myself, are kind of like, uh, we need our emotional needs met. And so if the way we're teaching is not meeting our emotional needs or our mental needs, it ain't going to work out. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. got to make, if you're going to have to make the change, you're going to have to make the change. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it was just going to have to do it given a lot of just, it's not just humanness, but I think it's a common yoga teacher archetype that we really need to be doing something that is actually really within the purview of what we want to be doing. Mm-hmm. So we need to be able to move on mm-hmm. and live with the fact that it, you have now entered a new startup. For me, with the Ashtanga to flow thing, it wasn't that big of an ask. Right, right, right. right it right, wasn't right. that big of a change. Mm-hmm. But if you were going from more of like a Hatha Vinyasa kind of strong flow to more of like Vini Yoga – or more like yin, or more like restorative, or more just kind of a slow flow. Like if you're taking a bigger, if you're making a bigger change with kind of the tone and the feeling of a class, that's going to be a harder ask. But you probably have to do it if so you have to do it. That's why you recommend you the parallel. The of, right. So keeping some of your classes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So let's get into the technique, right? I have a question that goes along with this, which is, let's say you, you don't want to shift your entire system. Let's say you teach Hatha flow or vinyasa flow, yeah. and you want to keep teaching vinyasa sure. flow, but you just feel like there's certain things about it that you want to revise or update or just aren't working for your students anymore. Like you can see it in your students. How do you make those changes gradually all at once? Do you make it explicit to the students you're making the changes? Is it implicit? How do you handle it? So this is something I've been handling for a very long time. Probably nine out of the 10 things I teach in Triangle are the same that I've been teaching in Triangle for a long period of time. The majority of what I teach in the majority of my poses is the same, that it's been for a long time. But there are some things in every single one of my poses that I teach differently than I used to teach, right? And if we just step back for a moment and think, can you imagine doing anything for 20 years and not having a technical improvement? I mean, literally, can you imagine that? Do we really think that everything there is to know about triangle pose was said in, you know, in 1984 in Pasadena or wherever? Like, that's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the danger, actually. It's the, I shouldn't say the danger. It's the catch-22 of learning other people's instructions, The catch-22 is we do need to learn other people's instructions because other people are further down the river and other people have thought about these things. And yet at the same time, at some point, you're going to be further down the river too. And you're going to have to figure out that that paddle actually isn't working as well as you thought it was going to work because time and time and time again, you see that it doesn't work for your body. And you see, it doesn't work for your students' bodies. Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out like, oh, well, this person that told me this, thank God they got me this far. But this one particular thing, actually, I'm going to disagree with, right? So I'll say another thing, then we'll get into examples, right? Which is we talked about Rodney in a previous episode, right? And I'm willing to bet- Rodney. Yeah. (laughs) I'm willing to bet that I would still- teach like probably if I used to teach a hundred percent of the technique that Rodney taught. Okay. Right. I don't know if that's the case, but let's say it. I would probably still now teach 85 to 90%. That's still a large concurrence, but over the course of a couple of decades, how are we not going to disagree about a couple different things? Mm-hmm. Right. Same thing with you and I, like, do we agree on this on everything all the time? No, but we agree on the big things. So the fact that we disagree on certain elements, is that really a big deal? No. No, you have to. Allow, right? You have so to let's just say I no longer totally agreed with how one of my teachers taught one thing. Does that undermine our relationship? No. Does that mean I think that person is bad or wrong? No. Does that mean that I have a different experience and some of the details in my experience are going to be different than the details in someone else's experience. Yes. How can we not have that freedom, right? So for me, where things have changed and evolved over the years, a lot is within the minutia. It's a lot within the details. It's a lot within the technique and within my priorities, Okay. So we'll go through a few examples, kind of going 
first through the the simplest stuff, right? Two panes of glass, being in a bicycle bicycle box. In triangle pose. In triangle pose, turning that top hip open to its maximum. That is definitely not something I advocate. Does that mean that I don't roll the top hip open? Yes, I roll the top hip open till it stops, but I don't try to move it more. Mm-hmm. Now, why that is is totally beyond the scope of our conversation, mm-hmm. right? But why not? Well, because I've learned over the years, both through trial and error and through watching a lot of people with significant sacroiliac dysfunction, what certain technique does to that body and saying, oh, well, if we have this really common instruction and based on that common instruction, we have a high incidence of the same problem. Let's change that instruction a little bit. Yeah. Right? Okay, so that's an example, right? Another example that comes up is buttock in oh. engaging the glutes. Right. Right? In backbends. In backbends, right? So again, I don't want to get into overqualifying everything. But as much as I used to say, don't use your glutes, I now say, use your glutes, mm-hmm. right? Because my understanding of how things work in the posterior chain has improved. Again, sort of going back to doing something for a long period of time, when we do something for a long period of time, we should understand those things better. And when we start to understand things better, we're probably going to make some minor changes. So understanding how all of the extensors on the back body work best when they work together, as opposed to thinking that we should be using some of those extensors while not using others of those extensors, right? So that is a very clear example, okay? Another really clear example is twists and the pelvis. Right? I used to always say, keep the two hips in line with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes I do that, but more often than not, I'm inclined to allow the pelvis to rotate mm-hmm. a little bit in the direction that the spine is rotating and twists, right? So those are a couple examples of technique. Now, when it comes to rolling those things out, right? Well, I'm going to give one more example, okay? Because this, this is the one that's that's important. Anjaneyasana. So right, a, a low lunge. I taught for years on Anjaneyasana to drop the hips as far forward and down as they will go and to not engage the back leg quads and hip flexors, but to allow them to have passive stretch. Now, I almost never teach that pose that way. I teach the pose where you are not going nearly as far forward and down, but you're creating much more muscular tone in the quadriceps and hip flexors that you're stretching while you're stretching them, Mm -hmm. okay? So those things have changed because my understanding of how bodies work, I believe, has significantly improved through experience, right? Does that mean that I was wrong then and that I'm right now? It depends on how you look at it. What it essentially means is knowing what I knew then I was teaching as accurately as I can teach. Knowing what I know now, I'm teaching as accurately as I can teach. Mm-hmm. So what do we do as a teacher when we start to teach poses differently? Hey, you guys, I used to say engage your glutes. Or I used to say don't engage your glutes in this pose. Now I do. Mm-hmm. 
So I think you can do a couple different things. You can do what I typically do, which is just acknowledge that you are now teaching the pose differently than you used to teach the pose. Mm -hmm. I actually, like, I don't think it undermines our authority at all in a setting to say, you know what? My perspective has changed. We want to be careful and not throw others under the bus. And that's that can be difficult to do. But I will say all the time, hey, we're in bridge pose. Our focus right now is strengthening the whole back body concentrically. So the back body is getting stronger and shorter. And the front body is getting stronger and longer. So on that back body, there's nothing I don't want you to use. There's instead, I want you to use everything in a balanced and integrated way. So I want you to use your hamstrings. I want you to use your buttock. I want you to use your paraspinal muscles. I don't want you to use anything so much that it burns out or hurts, but I don't want you to, to not use something intentionally, right? I will teach that all the time. I will also say, look, I used to say in this pose, don't engage X, Y, or Z. Or I will say, okay, you guys, those of you that have been coming to class for a long time, you know I used to teach this pose to drop those hips as far forward and down as they'll go. That's no longer my preference. That's no longer the way I want us to focus on it. Let's play with something a little bit different here. Do you encourage them to just see how it feels in their body? And Yeah. 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 And a lot of times what I'll do is I will test both. Mm-hmm. I'll say, now, I, we're going to do these poses these two different ways. Here's the way I used to teach it. Let's do it this way. I want you to feel what you're feeling. And then now let's do it this second way, kind of the reformed way or the current way I'm doing it. I want you to feel what you're feeling now. And then I'm going to tell you why I value the latter and why I used to value the former, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not like if I make a minor change, I feel the need to qualify that. Right. Right. It's not like if I'm in warrior two and someday I say broaden the scapula or I'm in warrior two and another day I say draw the scapula towards the spine. It's not like I feel like I need to overly qualify that because we have dynamic bodies and the technique that we choose on any given day is a function of what we're trying to accomplish or experience on that day. Technique is highly malleable and up to circumstance. But when you are wholesale really approaching something differently, then in that situation, I think it's, it can be valuable, especially if you have consistent students to say, this is the way I used to do it. It's no longer my preference. I want a little bit more muscle tone in those muscles that we're lengthening. So we have even greater control at our end range. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say one more thing too, which is, and this can be a difficult thing, and I only say this out of experience, and I have not perfected this, but as a teacher, try not to back yourself into a corner about what not to do because your opinion might change. Like, so for example, what I mean is I think it's best, and again, do I always follow this advice? No, but I think it's best to advocate for what you want people to do as opposed to telling people what you don't want them to do. Huh, okay. You can't always do that, but I find myself almost inevitably when I back myself into a corner about something by like taking a stance. don't engage your glutes in yeah. back then. Okay. Then, then that 
there's it's almost never failed to come back and haunt me. Right. Right. Especially if you're in the first many years of teaching. I look back at how, who I have been as a yoga teacher, and I am very respectful of my former self. At the same time, I know so much more. I'm so much more informed than I have been. And God willing, I'll be even more informed in another 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. So knowing that I have backed myself into a corner as a teacher and changed my position over the years, do I foresee the possibility of that happening again? Yes. (laughs) So I just try to kind of advocate for what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. One way to do this and one way, like there's two things. One is when you phrase something as my preference, my preference is that you engage your glutes in, especially if you're dealing with anything that is possibly controversial or different, right? By kind of front-ending my preference helps your student base know that this isn't some random opinion, but it's, you're kind of giving it a little couching. You're kind of giving it a little bit of your own input. You're not saying this is objectively and singularly the only way. You're saying, my preference is for most of you to engage your glutes in these poses. If that doesn't feel right for you, back off. But my preference is that you give it a go and see how that feels when you're doing most of your backbends. That's pretty hard to argue against as opposed to you definitely need to engage your glutes. Make sense? Yes. There's one more layer to it, which is I find myself often saying in Virabhadrasana 2 today, broaden your shoulder blades. Mm, Yeah. Draw the inner borders of of the scapula away from the spine. Mm -hmm. Widen the upper back to its maximum. A couple of weeks ago, we were doing the opposite because a couple of weeks ago, we were working on scapular retraction in poses. Now we're looking at protraction. So if you got used to hugging those scapula together for a while, right now we're, mm-hmm. we're taking it, giving ourselves some variety. There's more than one way to do something. Mm-hmm. The more educated you become and the more seasoned you become as a teacher, the more you're, you will have the capacity to see things more than one way. Right. And I think presenting it the ways that you've suggested sort of demonstrates the idea that a lot of what we're doing in asana practice is experimenting with the body. Yeah, totally. And that's what it's, that's what makes it feel so good. And that's, and then, you know, experimenting and being mindful that you're experimenting, noticing the experimenting, yeah. noticing the response. I mean, that's the whole thing. There's one more really brief thing that I want to address, which is your values as a teacher is going to change. So the, st- the style that you teach might change over the years. The techniques that you're teaching are definitely going to change over the years. And if they don't, you should reconsider things. And that doesn't mean everything's going to change, but some things are going to change because you're going to learn more. And so certain techniques are going to be are going to become inevitably outdated over a period of time, okay? The last thing is your values might change, right? And one of the big values that has changed for me is passive ranges of motion versus active ranges of motion. So for me that that becomes kind of a large blanket that then informs 
a lot of techniques within a sequence, right? So it's pretty rare for me in something like Upavishta Konasana to be doing a forward bend without slightly engaging the muscles that are lengthening while they're being lengthened, right? So that I think is going to be, that's just an example, but that's going to be something that that for teachers, even if you're not changing styles, you're going to still have kind of systemic priorities or belief systems that are going to evolve within the style. Okay. That's going to inform how you do what you do. And I don't know how much, I think it comes down to you as a student, excuse me, to you as a teacher. I don't know how much you have to qualify. So for example, let's say we're doing pigeon pose and the right leg is forward or some variation of pigeon pose because pigeon pose can be complicated for people. So let's say we're doing something that's stretching our right outer hip. I used to talk a lot about let the outer hip muscles soften, let them lengthen, let them release, let the weight of the body yield into the floor. I still do that once in a while, but that's not my default anymore. My default is if the right outer hip is stretching, then we're doing things to make sure that those muscles at length have a little bit of tone in them, right? And that carries over not into individ- just into an individual technique in an individual pose, but it carries over in, in kind of the overall tonal quality of the instructions that you're giving your students. So your styles might shift over the years. Your macro kind of meta teaching within those styles might change. And definitely technique is going to change. Hmm. Okay. And when I say definitely check technique is going to change, I'm saying, God, I hope technique changes. You know, and again, that doesn't mean 100% of technique changes. It means there's just going to be some some small details here and there that like any form of technology, we just need little software updates. That's all it is. This, you should be defragged. <laughs> Got to defrag your teaching. That's going to be lost on a lot of people. But those of you that get it, you, you, we love you. You're going to love it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Jason. Yep. Thanks so much for listening. I have some blog posts in mind that are related to this episode. So I'm going to put them up on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 149. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.